This afternoon I may proclaim to you the word of the Lord as we find it in the book of Lamentations. I'd like to turn to Lamentations chapter 3, where we'll begin reading at verse 1 and we'll read to verse 24. Lamentations is that little book wedged, you could say, between the book of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. It's got five chapters, and each chapter is an alphabetic acrostic with, you'll see, 22 sections, one for each of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So if you were to look through, look at chapters 1, 2, 4, and 5, you would see that each of those chapters has 22 verses. And then each verse starts with one of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Chapter 3 is set apart, it distinguishes itself by assigning three verses to every letter of the alphabet for a total of 66 verses, which is underscoring for us the fact that this chapter, these verses are a pivotal, it is a pivotal chapter, has a pivotal position in the center of the book and then our text itself serves as a section applauding the love and compassion of the Lord in the midst of the dark days of the exile. So let's read Lamentations 3, beginning at verse 1. Where the author, who is often presumed to be the prophet Jeremiah, writes, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. Here begins our text for this afternoon. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. 
The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. So far, our reading as well as our text. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's always encouraging and inspiring to hear about hymns that were born out of life-changing experiences. Charles Wesley composed the joyful And Can It Be after his dramatic conversion experience. Horatio Spafford wrote the moving words of that song, It Is Well With My Soul, after the tragic death of four of his children in a shipwreck over the Atlantic. But not every great hymn has sprung from a traumatic experience in the author's life, but instead from the warp and woof of the daily routine. One of the 20th century's most loved hymns, Great is Thy Faithfulness, which we hope to sing at the end of this worship service, was a product of a lifetime of experiencing God's faithful care. Thomas Chisholm was born in humble means. He grew up to be a pastor, but after one year he had to leave the ministry for poor health. For most of his life, he then worked as a life insurance agent, working hard to make ends meet. Even though he suffered ill health for much of his adult life, he lived to the ripe old age of 94 and wrote apparently more than 1,200 poems. Inspired by some of the words of our text, he wrote, Great is thy faithfulness as a testament to the constant faithfulness of a covenant-keeping God throughout his ordinary life with everyday struggles. Chisholm later wrote, God had given me many wonderful displays of his providing care, which have filled me with astonishing gratefulness. Grateful for God's providing care. He marveled at a lifetime of that care. The Lord our God leads us in different ways toward gratefulness in his care or for his care. He chooses different paths for each of us in order to help us see in greater measure that he loves us. When we put the text for Chisholm's hymn in its proper biblical context, we see that its author's life experience was anything but ordinary. These, the words of our text, are the words of a survivor, of a man who suffered greatly, who wrestled with the Lord. We read in verse 16 of chapter 3, he has made my teeth grind on gravel. He's rubbed my face in the dirt, as it were. And then it keeps going, as you heard, as we read. The author could never forget the bitter trials he faced. And yet it's as though his very confrontations with suffering and death were doorways to new life, to hope. 
Yes, before he falls into utter despair, he remembers his Lord. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. He learned much from his extraordinary sufferings. He learned that all he needed was the Lord's steadfast love. Yes, brothers and sisters, the Lord leads his children along different pathways in order for each of us to see in greater measure than before that he loves us deeply. And that's what gives us great strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow, no matter what he brings us, brings you in 2023. Yes, his covenant love leads us forward in hope. So I proclaim to you this word of the Lord. Our Lord's covenant love makes us a hopeful people. We'll see that made clear in the fact that this love is plentiful, it's persistent, and it's also promised. So this covenant love of the Lord that makes us a hopeful people is in the first place plentiful. The book of Lamentations was written soon after after the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem in 587 BC. To the Jews, of course, that was the ultimate disaster. The holy city was destroyed. The Israelite army had been crushed. The Davidic king Zedekiah was deposed and exiled along with everyone but the poorest. And to top it all off, the very temple of the Lord that monumental sanctuary of the God of all the earth was desecrated and burned. Gone were the priesthood and the sacrificial system. Gone was the holy of holies. Gone, so it seemed, were God's covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David. All of this made it a very personal disaster for the author indeed traditionally considered to be Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. He was not just a spectator to all that happened. Jerusalem was his city. The temple, in spite of all of its problems, was where he worshipped. The king, despite hostility toward his preaching, was Jeremiah's king. The defeated army, this author's army, we can't overestimate the depth of pain that Jeremiah felt when Zion was destroyed. All of this led to the writing of this little book in between Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Lamentations, as I said, is a collection of five poems, each of which is Jeremiah's lamentation for a fallen city and people. Apart from, really, the words of our text, it's gravely unsettling to read. You find this overload of grief and sorrow. It's this funeral dirge with language that is gloomy, depressed, dressed in black. You find a lot of distressed and horrified feelings. Just consider, we didn't read it, but chapter 2, verse 21 in the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger. 
slaughtering without pity. We have all these images, not of the glory days of the past, but of fresh memories of recent agonizing humiliation and defeat. The nation has fallen to the destruction of sin. Her guilt has turned the Lord into her destroyer. Chapter 2, verse 5, the Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds. And he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. All that Israel, all that Judah cherished, idolized, really, the Lord took away. So the people are overcome with feelings of grief, abandonment, destitution. Their wails are lamenting the fall of the daughter of Zion. As the author writes his words in the aftermath of great loss, with tears running down his cheeks, he confesses that the Lord in his righteousness has punished the sins of his people. The author affirms, much like Psalm 43 affirms, the justice of God, and then also, in this case, Judah's sins. All of this makes the author cry out on behalf of God's people in chapter 3, verse 1, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. Jeremiah was so identified with the welfare of Zion that mourning now took hold of his inmost being. And yet, as it also needs to happen, let's say, in the lives of us today, lamentation over sin, where that happens, must lead to confession. In the face of Jeremiah's darkness, his dismay, even his bewilderment, in the face of his profound sense of the indignation of the Lord against Zion and against the prophet himself, is there yet any shred of confidence, joy, hope? Yes, there is. After recalling all the afflictions and the wanderings, the wormwood and the gall, the author says in verse 21, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. As Jeremiah sits amid the devastation of the city, he knows in his heart this is not the end. No, he calls something to mind. He decides to meditate on something other than his own hard and awful circumstances. What does he call to mind? What is it that brings him hope? Jeremiah and God's people may know from their history, may call to mind that God is the source of not only judgment, but also deliverance. God had said he would bring his people back from exile, all the way back in Deuteronomy 30. And that's exactly what he would do. In other words, Jeremiah can call to mind who his God is, his character, his identity, and therefore have hope. In this case, 
a hope that Israel will have a future with the Lord. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. He is full of compassion and mercy. In wrath, he had turned his back on his daughter for a moment, but the author of Lamentations knows that it's not for a lifetime. God's chosen ones will survive. And that's not by chance or because they deserved it. No, not at all. It's all because of the Lord's steadfast love, our text says. That's the covenant love and loyalty of the Lord. The Lord is always faithful to his people because of his promises, his word. Wrath and punishment are not the final word for the people of God. Covenant love and loyalty are enduring. And they are plentiful. The author captures that in verse 22 by using the plural. You don't see it in English, but it says the steadfast love or covenant kindnesses of the Lord never ceases. His mercies, there it's in the plural, never come to an end. With each new day, the weeping prophet had fresh experiences of God's steadfast love. They last forever, and they are overflowing. (coughs) It's a remarkable testimony to the force, if I could call it that, the force of God's grace. Nothing can change the truth that God's love is always present. His love penetrates every nook and cranny of our experiences. If you consider your life, just over the past six months, let's say, I'm sure there's a lot you can talk about. Maybe you received a child from the Lord. Maybe you lost a loved one. Maybe you experienced the brokenness of sin in your marriage or your family. Maybe you struggled to make ends meet. Maybe you had a particular sin or some sins that you were struggling with. Every day, every year, we acknowledge, has joys and sadnesses. But every day and every year also has something else. There's someone who has always been present in his love. And that's the pressing question. Do you see his plentiful grace in your life? Do you see that he is someone who loves you? You only have hope for the future when you call this to mind. In spite of the suffering you may have in your life, you are not consumed because of the Lord's steadfast love. Actually, I rejoice that there's even more to it than that. There's the real temptation for us to doubt the Lord's steadfast love when we suffer. But it's very important for us to see that it's precisely because of God's steadfast love for us that we suffer. Yes, God loves us enough to take things away from us, let's say. For God always has a design in suffering. 
Could it be that our greatest need in times of suffering is not the removal of the suffering, but rather for us to see more of the glory, grace, love, sufficiency of our Father and our Savior? Isn't that what he was after with Jeremiah? And Jeremiah was given the eyes of faith to see it. Our confession in our text is one of the richest and most striking expressions of faith in the goodness of God. God was busy with his promises during the exile, and he's still busy with us today because he loves us in abundance. Jesus Christ is the ultimate expression of God's covenant love and compassion. For if you want to understand fully how the Lord in wrath remembers love and mercy, we gaze upon the cross of Christ. There you see in vibrant colors the full explanation for how God can preserve his stiff-necked people. Jerusalem's desolation pointed ahead to Christ's desolation outside of Jerusalem. He was exiled from the city of the righteous to endure the suffering and the agony reserved for the unrighteous. In God's justice and wrath, he turned his back on his beloved son. But we know that it was not for a lifetime. In wrath, he remembered mercy. After total darkness, the sun returned. It's because of that great grace that we today may have hope for the future, for this year, come what may. God's astonishing faithfulness has preserved us for him. And there's no question it will continue. So we come to our second point where we see that the Lord's love is persistent. As we have seen, the fact that the author has spoken in the plural about God's great love and compassions is not by accident. It's intentional. And we actually get further proof of this in verse 23. With each new day, the author has fresh, new expectations of divine love and compassion. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Now again, this is instructive for us. For in reaction to all that's being said, we could say, look, this is all fine for Jeremiah. And sure, we can look back on our life and we can all agree that the Lord has been with us. It's not hard to do that. He has been faithful to us. At least to a certain extent. What about those times when I needed fast action, a fast response from the Lord? Or what about those stretches of discouragement, maybe even depression? Isn't it maybe more realistic to say that God shows his faithfulness periodically? After all, each of us goes through light and dark times. There are events that are cause for rejoicing births, birthdays, anniversaries. 
but it's not always like that. For some, if not many of you, tears and hardship are not unfamiliar. It could be the loss of a job, a serious illness, a relationship that's gone sour, a loved one distancing himself or herself from the church, the news that a family member is in their last days, a loved one taken from you. Is the Lord truly faithful? The lamenter says in verse 23 that the Lord's compassions are new every morning. The Bible says, let it be clear, the Lord is unfailing in his compassion. He is persistent in his love. What do you think about that? It's not just here and there. God's love is not like the economy. It doesn't fluctuate, it doesn't ebb and flow. God's word doesn't allow us to take a calendar and say, here, this day, but not that day, this week, but not that month, God was present. New every morning are God's compassions. That leaves out no possibility for a lapse or a slip or a blink in God's compassionate and great love. Because that would make him rather unreliable, unfaithful, and unholy. That would make him a God who only responds when we ask him for help. And thank the Lord that he's not that way at all. His mercies are new every morning. That was a reality for God's people. Even to wake up in the morning was a reminder of God's constant care. And the fact that this confession comes from the lips of someone at that time is evidence by itself of God's supernatural grace. You wouldn't expect it. The author is being so graphic in his description of the situation at that time. Chapter 3, verse 9 and following, he writes that the Lord has blocked my way with blocks of stones. He's made my paths crooked. He's a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. And yet the author holds on to this confession. The Lord's great love and compassions never fail. They are new every morning. God's covenant love never fails. He pursues his people every single day. He has to. He has to, brothers and sisters, because his promises are unshakable. The Lord can't be unfaithful to his word because he cannot be unfaithful to himself. That's what then makes the author switch from the third person to the second person. He moves from describing God to addressing God with unbridled joy. Great, second half of verse 23, great is your faithfulness. The character of the Lord brought hope to this child of his. 
and that draws him into intimate communion with his faithful God. Jeremiah can't merely list the attributes of God, his great love, his compassion. No, he jubilates, he praises God directly for that. His thoughts become praises. Knowledge turns into rejoicing. Doctrine, if you like, issues forth into delight. Great is your faithfulness, O God, my Father. Brothers and sisters, isn't this God worthy of your praise and honor? His faithfulness preserved his people from one generation to the next. And it had to, so that the Lord Jesus could come for the salvation of our souls, to relieve us from guilt and death. Oh yes, the trials and the difficulties and the hardships continue. But these are to give us hope or to push us toward hope for the second coming of Christ when he is revealed in full and our relationship of perfect communion with our faithful God is fully realized. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. 1 Peter 1 verse 8. Christ is coming. <clears throat> and that gives us joy and hope. So when your eyes open at the dawn of a new day. God is already there. It was that way this morning. January 1st. It's going to be that way tomorrow when you awaken again. God is persistently there. He's there when we don't recognize it or don't think about it. When we wake up and life is good, let's say. But in those times when the troubles and cares of this world are weighing down on your shoulders, even from dusk to dawn, is the Lord really there? In the grief, sorrow, and disappointment of life, yes, the Lord is still there. We have to see that. He promised you as much at your baptism, and he reminds you of his persistent presence and love at every baptism you see. It may be, brothers and sisters, that the word today has to bring you to your knees if you're struggling to confess the faithfulness of God. Yes, in all likelihood, then we all have to go to our knees before the Lord, asking for his forgiveness for the times where we've not confessed his constant faithfulness. The Lord shows his faithfulness day in and day out. We have to rejoice in that and never forget it. God is persistent, and he calls us to live for him because of that. Friends and families may let you down, but no, not our Lord in heaven. His mercies are new every morning, no matter how that day turns out. We can count on his promises. So we come to our final point where we see that the Lord's covenant faithful love is promised. 
Verse 24, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. Jeremiah here is using terminology that elsewhere was used in the Old Testament to describe the Lord as Israel's portion or inheritance. The Lord had instructed Moses how to divide the land of Canaan when the tribes of Israel enter. Verse 26, God promised each of the tribes a portion of the land as their own inheritance. But as you may know, the Levites were unique in this. The Lord said to Aaron, you will have no inheritance in their land, nor will you have any share among them. He says, I am your share and your inheritance among the Israelites. God himself promised to ensure their survival through the gifts, sacrifices, and offerings brought by the rest of the people to the Lord. Now the author of Lamentations says to himself that the Lord is his portion. The author is speaking in biblical terms. Also David had spoken this way earlier in Psalm 16. The Lord is my, <clears throat> the Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The Lord gives a measure of his goodness to each of his children. He's promised it in his word. And this is something that the author and all of God's people could lean on. It was the only way they could stand firm in their distress and adversity. They could only find contentment in the Lord and in his favor. Trusting in God alone as their portion, that was the only foundation for hope. Because in God alone, there is rest for our souls. His favor, <clears throat> his favor is enough for our safety. There was no earthly hope for them in their present darkness. But with God as their portion, they could look forward from their troubles, their despairs, and their threats of the present to the joy of a life with the Lord. Understand well what Jeremiah is saying here. God is Jeremiah's God. Jeremiah has come into the very possession of God himself. Is that also your confession, beloved? The Apostle Paul wished that we may be filled with the fullness of God. That's another way of saying that God is the portion of his people. I'm convinced that not even eternity itself will begin to exhaust the meaning of that truth, that God is our portion. But it's true, and it has to be your confession. For if God himself is your portion, then everything that he in his providence visits upon you is nothing less than the unrolling of his own favor and his own mercy. If God is your portion, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. Psalm 91 verse 10. 
And yet we don't always seek our safety and satisfaction in the Lord, at least not completely. We don't always want to follow his lead, but that is hopeless, is that's what the author implies. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. The verb he uses is the same one he used in verse 21, where he said, therefore I have hope. Only those can hope or persevere in hope who enjoy God as their full portion, satisfied with him alone. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, the faithful of Israel could join in with this confession. They were burned, but not consumed by the Lord's righteous anger. They could yet find their strength in the promise of their covenant God, <clears throat> that he alone, in all his glory, with all his compassion, is sufficient for them. That had to be their confession and trust. Otherwise, they would have been overcome with impatience whenever they faced difficulty, famine, or sword. But their hope was in the Lord, who is faithful in all he does. It's the same kind of trust that once came from the mouth of the Apostle Paul in Romans 8. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what equips believers <clears throat> to look ahead, even though the cares of this world may stare you in the face every morning. You may fix your mind on God alone, never ceasing to bring glory to him because he's promised to be your portion. Hope gives us endurance. He is our God of light and darkness, of rest and upheaval in our life, of abundance in our need. And so brothers and sisters, have this on your mind. Our hope is in the name of the Lord. We have a rich inheritance in Christ. We have the promises of our baptism. When we really look to the Lord for everything, we have so much reason for hope. He has shown himself in the past year to be faithful. We've all experienced it. Even when <clears throat> you face doubts, questions, waiting, wondering, wrestling, when there was life and rejoicing in your life, when there was death and mourning, if that happened, the Lord has proven himself to be our portion. <clears throat> the Lord has proven himself as a plenteous and persistent God. His promises have never failed us. And so <clears throat> Jesus Christ remains our inheritance today. We share in all the spiritual blessings coming from his life, death, and resurrection. 
what grace we may know, what peace this gives us today. So do you know in whom your hope is founded? The Lord has with you the Lord has you with his love surrounded. He is your rock. Trust his might. When once the evening veils of life enshroud you, bring though worn by ills and strife, for every day God has allowed you higher praise to him, O God of life. Amen. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, we thank and praise your holy name in heaven on high, that you are always faithful, that you are the God of covenant loyalty and love, that you are abounding in love and mercy toward us. Father, though we say these words so often, your word this afternoon has reminded us of just how blessed we really are. It is a great blessing to be your beloved children. We come to see how gracious, how faithful you are. We are still here. We are not consumed by our sins or because of our sins. We receive every blessing we need from your hand, even more than we need. And so, Father, we ask for you to preserve your church, glorify yourself, by the praises of your people. <clears throat> Watch over your church, O Lord, in mercy. Keep her from evil, guard her, perfect her in your love, and unite her, cleansed and conformed unto your will. Give us every measure of strength and grace in order to live according to your ways, to have eyes wide open to what you are showing us of yourself, what you are showing us of how to live in dependence upon you. Father, we can be so short-sighted or myopic. And so we pray, Father, that you would grant us, indeed, sharp eyes with a view to seeing your work in our lives, your work in this world. We pray, O oh Lord, all of these things in Jesus' name, amen.